Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello, and welcome to Civilines podcast series. Jonathan Dunbar here, Civilines EMEA director, and I'm joined by Liana Semchuk, our lead analyst for Europe and Eurasia, along with James Barth, our North America analyst. Thank you both for joining me today on what promises to be an interesting topic, the state and trajectory of US-Russia relations. We've seen a range of developments in recent weeks leading to the ratcheting up of tensions between the US and Russia. For example, sanctions imposed on Moscow in response to the poisoning of Alexei Navalny and the arrival of B-1 bombers in, in Norway to conduct exercises in the Arctic Circle. So when we last touched on the subject of potential US-Russia tensions following the election of uh, President Joe Biden and his arrival in the White House, we did say that the relationship between the two is likely to be tepid at best. However, would you say that this is playing out as anticipated or has it escalated significantly more since? Liana, what are your thoughts? Uh, thank you. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, at the moment it's it's playing out as we pretty much expected. I mean, we noted from from the start that uh, you know relationship between the U.S. and Russia has not necessarily been the friendliest, the best of times. But certainly, with the arrival of uh, Biden in the White House, the tensions were predicted going to be increasing, and you know we're seeing signs of that in various areas already. You know, the recent sanctions, which we can talk a bit about uh, more in detail shortly, were just one. Example, there's also, you know, issue of Russia stepping up pressure on big American tech giants like Twitter, Google, and Facebook. Uh, We're also seeing these tensions spill over to geopolitical areas. So, for example, in countries like Ukraine, uh, which Russia views as one of its traditional spheres of influence, so to speak, you know, and for various domestic reasons, but certainly with Biden's presidency, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky began to take a much harsher stance against pro-Russian political forces and oligarchic forces in Ukraine, which is driving tensions not just between Kiev and Moscow, but also between Moscow and Washington. But, you know, also, at least from my perspective at the moment, Biden also has quite a balancing task on his hands, uh, because whilst on the one hand he is pursuing a tougher stance on Russia, he's also trying to mend the relationship with Europe, um, and a large part with Germany, which is a lot more cooperative with Russia uh, on various strategic infrastructural project, uh, projects such as Nord Stream 2, for instance. Um, and so certainly Chancellor Angela Merkel also clearly signaled to Washington that you know Germany and by extension Europe uh, will not simply follow America's lead on the Russian matter. So I think uh, US is definitely aware of this. And I think it's still potentially trying to figure out just what exactly to do about Russia and how far to push any additional sanctions. I think, again, as we'll talk about more in, in detail about the recent ones, I think the fact that Biden administration did not exceed the measures taken by the European Union and instead chose to match them perhaps is one signal that they are aware of the need to balance and coordinate with Europe a bit. But in any case, I think moving forward, we can probably expect these tensions to be consistently more strained, if not increasing, depending on events. Yeah, I think what Liana said there about the balancing policy from Joe Biden is is really important. I think there are a number of different aspects that are at play here. Obviously, he's balancing his own views towards uh, aspects like Nord Stream 2 and uh, the Eastern European region and democracy with Russia on one hand with uh, Germany and what large part of 
Western Europe see as their interests on the other. But he's also balancing different views within the US government as well. Republicans are pressing him to take a harder line on Russia, but at the same time, he is also aware of the need to win over support within some others in, uh, the, gov in the US government to take a more balanced approach to Russia so that he can win other areas as well and, and get Russian cooperation on issues such as Syria as well. Great. Thank you both for those comments. What about the latest threats of further sanctions on Russia from the US? And, uh, you know, we'll bring in the EU here too. How has this been perceived in Russia so far? And uh, what do we expect in terms of a reaction from the Kremlin? Liana? Certainly. So the use of targeted sanctions, I think, has pretty much been the central response of US against Russia since really, I would say, annexation of Crimea in 2014. And these latest sanctions, which uh, were announced on, I believe, March 2nd by the US and the EU, were also relatively targeted. They um, sanctioned uh, several Russian government officials and entities that are connected to Navalny's arrest. But as with previous sanctions, I think this particular round appears to be um, relatively light in terms of their actual implications and impact on the Kremlin. But I think it's important to highlight as well that this Navalny effect, so to speak, I think is a bit of a game changer because, you know, his not only his poisoning, but his subsequent dramatic return to Russia, followed by him being imprisoned, really put a lot more pressure on the West to respond. Um, so I think there's still a fair bit of uncertainty ahead uh, because there is a relatively decent chance, I would say, that the possible second round of sanctions again announced over the next few months, especially from the US, um, could be more damaging and could, for example, begin to target uh, Russian oligarchs, which is something that Navalny and his team have been calling for for a while now. But again, you know, there are previous examples, for instance, uh, in the past where sanctions against the oligarchs were implemented and then lifted. So, for instance, in 2019, the Trump administration lifted sanctions uh, against uh, Roussel, which is an aluminum giant linked to Russian oligarch Oleg Deripiska, because, you know, the administration said that they were worried about the impact uh, on the global metals industry and that these sanctions increased the demand for Chinese steel. So... You know, of course, U.S. is also trying to balance the, the issue of China and that in its rise. So in some ways, we will have to see just how far they are subsequently going to push on the Russia. But, you know, in terms of how Russia is likely to react, I mean, there is definitely no question that uh, the more damaging sanctions would certainly prompt retaliation. And as much has already been said by the current foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, you know, who essentially said that any kind of so to speak, nuclear option, which would see the sanctioning of Russian debt would be extremely dangerous and would be perceived as an act of an economic war by Russia. Again, I think this particular option is very extreme. And I think at the moment, it's very unlikely, uh, especially given the fact that, you know, a lot of companies, especially in the EU, are still very invested in Russia and that Russia is one of the main trading partners of the bloc. I think right now it's the EU's fifth a large trading partner. So I think the potential fallout from this would be too damaging to justify such an extreme uh, uh, sanctions. But I think harsher measures, especially from the US, are probably likely in, in the coming months. Yeah, I, I think from the US point of view, there are a couple of things that we can learn from the 2nd of March sanctions. Uh, to start with, it's a very holistic approach to sanctions towards Russia. It brought together mechanisms across the US government. So we have the State Department denial of visas. We have the Treasury Department's financial sanctions, the Commerce Department's export control regime. And then 
all of this comes under both the executive branch and the congressional sanctions and the congressional branch as well. So the sanctions authorities in the US responding to Russia are, are very coordinated at the moment. I think that that's something to note going forwards. Also, the nine individuals who were sanctioned in relation to the poisoning of Navalny is clearly a, a nod to what the EU has done already. As Liana said, this is an attempt to bring US sanctions and foreign policy in line with what's going on in Europe. Um, and I think that that's signaling a stronger front, uh, a, more cohesive front a, a more cohesive front to Russia as well. And then thirdly, the absence of sanctions on significant oligarchs, I think is important to note, but from, from my perspective, I see that as a, this is something that could yet come. It signals that Biden is taking a more measured approach to sanctions. Um, he's aware that sanctions need to be targeted uh, in order to achieve a specific outcome. And I think that he's keeping that in his back pocket and is not putting all of his cards out on the table to start with. Overall, it seems Biden's playing a waiting game. I think he wants to not alienate Germany, but he also wants to take a hard line on Russia. And I think that this most recent sanctions policy really represents that. Yeah, Liana, James, you both touched on the uh, latest round of sanctions there. Have these had any impact on key projects such as Nord Stream 2? You know, have there been any notable changes around this project? Where's that heading? Yeah, so I think at, at the moment, in terms of any notable developments, there haven't necessarily been too many. I think uh, from my perspective, obviously, uh, the project is 95% completed and it still has support from Germany, which is very important in order for it to continue to move forward. Um, I think given those two factors, the consensus is generally that it is pretty much inevitable that it, it will be completed, that it's just a matter of time. However, of course, um, since the beginning of the year, the expansion of U.S. sanctions to target the entities like insurers for example, that are affiliated with the project has definitely caused a lot of apprehension and already led to a few companies to pull out of it. Uh, and so this, this looming threat of potential further U.S. sanctions um, will continue to, I think, uh, generate a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, with regards to what we were just talking about, the coordinated response between the U.S. and the EU uh, during this latest round of sanctions, you know, also sent a relatively, I think, symbolic message potentially to the Kremlin, um, because it kind of showed a united front between U.S. and the EU that they are willing to hold governments accountable that are uh, found to be violating human rights and undermining democracy and, and things like that. But at the same time, again, as we've been saying here, I think it's precisely this renewed partnership, so to speak, between the US and Europe that will make it a lot more tricky, I think, for Washington and for Biden in particular to, I think, channel all of their efforts into completely derailing the project, uh, given the importance that it has to Germany and the continued support uh, that it uh, retains in Berlin despite the ongoing political issues in, in Russia. So I think, again, I will let James speak to the US side of things, but I think uh, from Europe's perspective, Germany is betting on the fact that Biden will try to find some sort of a compromise and uh, the new administration will be more keen to pursue some sort of a deal as opposed to further sanctions against it. No, I, I think you're spot on there, Liana. I think from the Biden administration's point of view, his relationship with Europe and Russia will really be about picking the right battles. And I'm not sure that Nord Stream 2 is that battle that he wants to, to fight. As you say, it's almost completed anyway. What we could see in the coming months is a slight shift in the Biden administration's tack on it, uh, away from this desire to just have it be completely stopped 
um, and more towards uh, other sorts of um, policy options. For example, he could look to try and uh, create more benefits for Ukraine out of the deal. At the moment, Gazprom is only sending 40 billion cubic meters of gas per year through Ukraine through 2024, either increasing or extending this amount or, or this contract, sorry, could be one option there. And it would be a win-win. Win, uh, to quote Michael Scott, you have uh, Ukraine winning there, and then also the, uh, the US and Germany get to kind of resolve their bilateral dispute in this situation. I do agree with uh, Liana that Biden will look to not alienate Germany. And I, I think in the end here, Germany is going to win this battle and uh, the US will just look for concessions in, in other areas. What about any other potential flashpoints as, uh, as we move into the 2021 between the US and Russia? You know, are there any factors impacting this relationship um, and how do you think it's going to evolve uh, as we progress? Uh, sure. I think from my side, uh, one uh, thing that has already been generating a lot of tensions and I think will continue to, to drive tensions between not just Washington and Moscow, but in general is everyone's favorite topic since last year, which is COVID-19. It's uh, definitely a complicating factor for the relationship between um, uh, US and Russia, I think, and as well as with the EU, as it relates to vaccine rollouts and various allegations of misinformation around this topic from both sides. Just earlier this week and last week, you know, Moscow uh, and the US and then Washington kind of had a verbal debate about, uh, you know, misinformation with US department accusing Russia of spreading misinformation about vaccines produced in the States. Uh, meanwhile, Moscow also demanded an apology from the European Medicines Agency after a comment was made uh, by the agency's official who essentially compared the emergency nationalization of Sputnik V to Russian roulette. So I think the topic of vaccinations will continue to uh, remain quite a divisive and polarizing one and something that I think will kind of maybe drive the two um, countries further apart as opposed to bring them closer together. And the last one for me, I think, would be also um, a space to watch would be cyber as well as the broader tech industry. Again, earlier this week, following the uh, solar winds hack last year, which impacted public and private sectors in the U.S., you know, the Kremlin responded quite alarmingly to reports that allegedly U.S. Uh, would retaliate and engage in counter cyber strikes and Russian networks after the intelligence officials essentially said that Russia was most likely behind the solar winds hack. So I think Russia's continued crackdown on the U.S. tech sector and American uh, tech companies in Russia, um, as well as potential um, tit-for-tat uh, cyber attacks between the two are things from my end that I think will continue to be of importance and things to watch uh, in the months ahead. I definitely agree with those. Uh, tech and COVID are, are critical to their relationship. Uh, to provide two more, I would say uh, democracy in Eastern and, and Central Europe is one, uh, and Washington's relationship with NATO is another. Uh, to take the first of those, Biden is, has been a vocal supporter of movements, for example, in Belarus, saying that he is promising to, to stand with the people of Belarus and support their democratic aspirations there, whilst Putin has pledged financial military support for the Lukashenko regime. Biden has also been a very strong proponent of widening NATO's membership. He was a big supporter of Ukraine in the early 2000s joining. Um, he's also pledged to increase US support for Ukraine, including weapons. But to counter these, I, I think Biden is aware of needing to, again, going back to our discussion about sanctions, about towing this kind of more balanced approach. He was pretty lukewarm in his response to the arrest of Milia in Georgia. 
which is a key state in this kind of battle over democracy in, in, in that region. If we're being critical here, I think uh, one would say that Biden is perhaps more bark than bite. But I think if we're being generous here, it seems like he's weighing different policy options and, and is aware of the linkages between them. Taking too strong of an approach in, in one area may negatively impact his ability to negotiate in another. I think uh, Churchill's famous quote here is, is worth uh, bringing into the discussion. You can always count on the Americans to do the right thing just after they've exhausted all the other possibilities. So I think uh, this kind of slightly slower and more balanced approach is, is definitely something to look for from, from Washington. But yeah, democracy and, and NATO being two key areas of uh, contest between the two nations. Liana, James, thank you again for joining me today on what has been a most insightful session and a hugely interesting topic. As usual, we'll now move forward to have a look at um, any notable events over the next seven days. And today I'm joined by Edward Johnson, our Insight Team Manager. So, Edward, what's on the radar for the next, the next week ahead? Hi, Jonathan. Uh, thanks very much. Yes, uh, well, in Europe, we've got a, a series of upcoming activism events. Uh, Extinction Rebellion are launching their Spring Rebellion event in the Netherlands this week, with disruptive protests expected on the 14th of March in numerous cities. And it's likely to begin a sort of series of, uh, of, of mass XR events across Europe in the, in the coming weeks um, in, in different countries there. Um, on the 14th to the 21st of March, we've also got the start of Israeli Apartheid Week, uh, which we see you know, further protests and direct action accompanied with online criticism of Israeli-affiliated firms. We also have Israeli Apartheid Week running from the 14th to the 21st of March, uh, which will see a heightened risk of a protest, direct action, online criticism of Israeli-affiliated firms in numerous sectors across Europe. What about further afield beyond EMEA? Ed, is there anything else that we need to take into account? Well, we've got in, in Asia Pacific, I think, a, a series of fairly high profile diplomatic meetings coming up. Uh, there's the inaugural meeting of the so-called Quad Leaders, uh, which will be held remotely on the 12th of March uh, as the US and its key allies in the region, Japan, India and Australia, uh, step up cooperation in an effort to, to counter China's growing influence in the region. And following on from that, newly minted US Secretary of State Blinken will visit Japan and South Korea on the 14th and 18th of March prior to flying back to Alaska to meet his Chinese counterpart, which would mark the, the first high-level high dialogue between uh, Beijing and Washington since Biden took over the presidency. The, the efforts of the, the purpose, really, of the meetings are to um, assess the state of bilateral ties, which are at sort of the lowest point in decades, and, and sort of set, set up the landscape for the Biden presidency. However, you know, the, the resolution of any major friction points is, is, is highly unlikely at this point, but hopefully the meeting will create conditions for future high-level engagement. Ed, thank you for that overview, and thank you to all of you who have joined us today. As ever, should you wish to know any more about what we've discussed, please do reach out. Thank you, and goodbye. <laughs>